With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. The alarming prevalence of domestic abuse, also known as intimate partner violence, extends globally. According to the CDC, about 41% of women and 26% of men have encountered violence from an intimate partner. These statistics are inherently skewed due to the underreporting driven by various factors, such as fear of disbelief, hesitancy among minority groups based on past experiences with authorities, and men feeling ashamed to admit vulnerability. When one partner is a member of the police force, reporting abuse becomes even more challenging. Survivors are reluctant to disclose their partner's actions to individuals they perceive as their abuser's colleagues. Complicating matters is the Blue Wall of Silence, an unspoken code where police officers avoid reporting or acknowledging corruption within their ranks. Between 1990 and 1997, the U.S. saw 227 cases against allegedly abusive police officers, resulting in only four convictions. Given these dismal odds, many survivors opt not to report abuse. Despite this reluctance, 1990s studies indicated that 30 to 40 percent of relationships involving police officers included instances of intimate partner violence. These studies suggested that officers in the U.S. police force committed domestic violence at a rate roughly 15 times higher than the general population. While these studies are dated, the situation may not have necessarily improved. During the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, Stay-at-home mandates led to a general increase in domestic violence reports, with a rise of up to 47% in Chicago, Illinois, and 18.4% in Phoenix, Arizona. Today, I'll discuss cases from 2008 and 2009, between the initial 1990 and present studies. Both cases involve the murder of police officers and are instances of intimate partner violence although the officers were not necessarily the perpetrators. Okay, on to the show. David Merle Ford, born in Taylor County, Kentucky in May 1968, led a busy and diverse life. Despite his varied experiences, he remained in his home county throughout his life, growing up in Campbellsville, marrying there, and ultimately passing away at the age of 40 
where he was also laid to rest. David had four sons, David, Brian, Austin, and Adam. While one son was shared with his wife, Tanya, the other three were from a previous relationship. Additionally, Tanya brought three children from her prior relationship into their family, Brooklyn, Stephen, and Blake. David had a brother and a sister. His entire family lived locally. Professionally, David served as a police officer, initially in the Bradsfordville area, before transitioning to the larger Lebanon department. Wally Brady, assistant chief for the Lebanon force, spoke highly of David, describing him as a fine officer, always ready to assist those in need, both on and off duty. Officer Brandon Blair, a colleague and friend, went so far as to say that David was well-liked, even by individuals he had personally arrested. On the morning of February 10, 2009, David was leisurely browsing the internet while off-duty and at home. At 11.16 a.m., he visited Semantic.com, a security software provider. The timeline becomes unclear from this point, but Tanya, his wife, eventually called the police to report that David had been shot. She arrived home to find him lying on the floor in a pool of blood. By the time the police arrived, David was already deceased at the age of 40. A post-mortem examination determined that David had died around 12.30 p.m., though the exact time of death remained imprecise. The cause of death was confirmed as homicide, with David having been shot in the back of the head. As the sole person present at the scene of David's murder, Tanya immediately became a potential suspect. Detective Brian Picard informed her of the need for a gunshot residue test and advised her not to wash her hands to facilitate ruling her out as a suspect. Although Tanya agreed not to wash her hands, her neighbors allowed her to use her restroom before the test, and upon her return, her hands were free from the muddy marks they had earlier. Subsequent testing at the station yielded a negative result for gunshot residue. As the investigation unfolded, the seemingly tranquil life of the Fords began to unravel, Revelation surfaced, exposing the discord in David and Tanya's marriage, marked by persistent arguments. A significant factor in their discontent was David's numerous extramarital affairs, leading to his recent move to stay with his latest mistress three weeks before his demise. David's brother revealed that he had planned to file for divorce the following week, a plan that never materialized. With a compelling motive in place, Tanya became the focus of the police investigation. Circumstantial evidence continued to mount, casting doubt on her narrative. Tanya claimed she was at a local Sonic restaurant getting coffee at the time of David's murder. A story supported by two Sonic employees, manager Denisa Beckley and employee Ashley Simpson. They recalled seeing her between 10.55 and 11.10 a.m., Although it's worth noting that Ashley, as Tanya's half-sister, and Denise's son had been previously married to Ashley. It's crucial to highlight that cell tower records strongly contradict Tanya's alibi. AT&T representatives revealed that when Tanya received a phone call from her husband at 10.59 a.m., her cell phone data placed her firmly near her home. Another call 20 minutes later further confirmed her presence in that area. 
This contradicted Denise's account, who couldn't comprehend why cell phone records indicated Tanya wasn't at the restaurant where she claimed to have been seen. Despite the conflicting evidence, Denisa, Ashley, and Tanya maintained the accuracy of their recollections. Officer Brandon Blair, a friend of David, reported another piece of evidence. David had been receiving anonymous threatening notes in the weeks leading up to his death, causing him to feel paranoid. One of these notes found near David's body raised suspicions that Tanya might be involved. The note contained information shared only with Tanya and Blair, mentioning David's most recent affair partner by name. When the note was tested for fingerprints, one of Tanya's fingerprints was discovered on it. The final blow came from witnesses testifying that after a previous affair came to light, Tanya had stated that if she ever discovered David cheating again, she would kill him. On October 19, 2010, with no smoking gun, a grand jury of 17 witnesses convened to decide whether there was enough cause to arrest Tanya Ford. The following day, a year and a half after David Ford's murder, Tanya was arrested. Tonight, 20 months after a Lebanon, Kentucky police officer was shot in the head, police believe they know who killed him. WHS 11's Anna Prendergast is joining us live in Taylor County, Kentucky, where Officer David Ford lived and was killed. Anna? David Ford's wife, yes, wife, Tanya, is inside the Taylor County Detention Center right behind me, charged with murdering her husband, David. Now, we asked her for an interview a little while ago, and she told me no. But David Ford's friends and family are talking about the new big developments in this case. 40-year-old David Ford worked at the Lebanon Police Department for three years. David was a fine, a fine officer, just a good, a good friend. Today, his former friends and co-workers heard the news that Ford's wife, Tanya, has been charged with his murder. I'm just glad they made an arrest on that case. Do you know her? No, I don't know her. I've I seen her at the funeral, but I, I don't know her personally, no. In February of 2009, Tanya Ford called 911 and told police she found her husband dead inside their home in Campbellsville. Police say he was shot in the back of the head. Since then, Kentucky State Police have been gathering evidence and talking to 17 witnesses. They won't go into specifics, but say that's what led them to Tanya Ford and yesterday took their findings to a grand jury. I think in the public's eyes, it was laying dormant. Uh, but that was not the case uh, at all. And, and throughout the course of a year and a half, you know, what we believe to, to, uh, to have transpired, we presented to the grand jury and they returned the indictment and here we are. Now, just a few minutes ago, I talked with David Ford's son right here. Here's what he had to say about his stepmother being charged with murder. It was shocking. I mean, you know, it's been my stepmother, but I mean, it's everything, you know, it happened. I mean, so that's all justice just needs to be served. So, I mean, we got, you know, a little bit of closure today. It helped out a lot today. No one, you know, somebody was charged for this. So. Now, coming up at 11 o'clock tonight, you're going to hear much more from David's brother and all of his sons, and you're going to hear about the couple's rocky marriage. We're live in Taylor County and a Prendergast, WHAS 11 News. She pleaded not guilty the next month and was bailed out by family members posting a $30,000 bond. The trial, which commenced on August 20, 2012, after five postponements, centered on Tanya's defense, 
emphasizing the circumstantial nature of the evidence against her. Testimonies from Tanya's family, including two of her children, portrayed her as a wonderful mother with close relationships. However, the weight of evidence pointing to Tanya's guilt was substantial. Tanya's mother, Linda Williams, revealed during the trial that she had privately confessed to killing David in a recorded conversation with a confidential informant. She repeated this admission in another recorded statement to the police. The trial exposed a damning revelation from Tanya herself. In the 911 call reporting David's shooting, she claimed not to have gotten close to his body due to the amount of blood. Expert testimony refuted this, asserting that she could not have seen the gunshot without approaching much closer than she had claimed. After a swift four-day trial, the jury found Tanya guilty, and she was taken into custody for the first time since her family had posted bail two years earlier. The following month, she was sentenced to 20 years in prison for her husband's murder, becoming eligible for parole in August 2029, after serving 17 years, or 85% of her sentence. Tanya's legal team submitted several appeals, citing various grounds, including the prosecution's use of hearsay, which should have been inadmissible, and the court allowing the jury to use their cell phones during deliberations. All appeals were denied despite reaching the Kansas Supreme Court. A memorial honoring David Ford stands outside the Lebanon Police Department, where he served for three and a half years. While friends and family acknowledge the turbulent nature of Tanya and David's relationship, characterized by David's serial infidelity, it's not appropriate to speculate on whether Tanya experienced intimate partner violence at the hands of David. Notably, this aspect wasn't used as a part of her defense in court. Tragically, the series of threatening notes Tanya sent her husband caused emotional distress, leading to a single explosive act of domestic abuse that claimed David's life. Hey, True Crime listeners, before we dive into the next case, let's take a moment to talk about a different kind of mystery, the case of your rough and tired feet. Our podcast is brought to you by Babyfoot, the number one selling foot peel in America. I know we're used to dissecting crime scenes, but have you ever dissected the crime scene on your own feet? Babyfoot's original foot peel is the secret weapon for putting your best foot forward. Picture this, a professional-grade product that works its magic on your feet, leaving them softer than a detective's alibi. It's not just a foot peel, it's a true crime against calluses and rough patches. Just like solving a mystery, the formula is clean and free from harmful chemicals. No hidden agendas, just pure foot-pleasing results. Your feet will thank you as they feel smoother than a perfectly executed plot twist. This isn't just any foot peel, it's the original, like solving the cold case of rough feet. And guess what? Babyfoot just isn't a bestseller. It's the number one selling foot peel in America, making it the ultimate accomplice in your journey to silky, crime-free soles. So, fellow listeners, get ready to unmask the softness beneath the surface. Visit babyfoot.com and enter promo code TCFC24 at checkout to receive 20% off your purchase. That's babyfoot.com. Enter promo code TCFC24 at checkout to receive 20% off your purchase. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In our next case, the situation is unequivocal. The woman wielding the gun was a victim of brutal, consistent domestic abuse at the hands of her husband, a former member of the police force. In 1979, 17-year-old Barbara led a vibrant and happy life in Queens, New York. Her path crossed with Raymond Sheehan, three years her senior during a religious event hosted by their church. Despite a spark during their first meeting, Barbara quickly developed misgivings about the relationship. Raymond's controlling possessiveness, demanding that she call him immediately after school, led to a brief breakup. Their paths crossed again a couple of years later, and despite the location being a bad omen, they resumed their relationship. By 1983, they were married, with Barbara becoming Barbara Sheehan. In 1986, their first child, Jennifer, was born. Raymond's position as a sergeant with the NYPD, acquired during the early years of their relationship, became a tool he would use to threaten his wife throughout their life together. Similar to many abusive relationships, Raymond initially showered Barbara with affection after bouts of aggression. He would apologize, bring gifts or flowers, and promise not to harm her again, a common tactic meant to make the victim question the severity of the abuse. However, abuse is abuse, and Barbara found herself unable to leave the toxic cycle. Raymond's violence escalated after the birth of their second child, Raymond Jr., in 1990. Seven years into their marriage, physical assaults on Barbara began. Initially, he ensured that the injuries were hidden beneath everyday clothing. But soon, he started hitting her in the face, even in the presence of others outside the family. He systematically eroded Barbara's confidence, resorting to verbal abuse, calling her stupid, fat, and a terrible mother, perpetuating a cycle of relentless bullying. Another tactic employed by abusers is to make victims feel worthless and dependent on the abuser's love. The list of abuses inflicted upon Barbara seemed endless. Raymond physically assaulted her, struck her, spit on her, choked her, threatened her with guns, and, at times, shoved his gun into her mouth. Additionally, he allegedly subjected her to his sexual fetishes without consent and openly revealed his visits to sex workers. Jennifer and Ray Jr. grew up as witnesses to their mother being subjected to attacks by their father. According to both children, acts of violence were a regular occurrence both within and outside their home. Jennifer, vividly recalled instances where Barbara was struck by Raymond, even while he was driving, causing the car to swerve dangerously across the road, putting the entire family at risk. Entering a room to find their father pinning Barbara to the ground while delivering punches became a routine occurrence for the children. 
Jennifer, at the tender age of 10, witnessed such an incident. Barbara's attempts at preparing dinner could also escalate into violent outbursts. For example, when Raymond was displeased with the meal she was preparing, he would throw it at her and trash the kitchen. In one specific incident, his anger reached a point where he threw boiling pasta sauce at her for making pasta instead of the steak he desired. When Ray Jr. turned 17 in 2007, his parents took him on vacation with another family. Unfortunately, the family remained unsafe even a thousand miles away from home. During a dinner on vacation, Ray Jr. discovered his mother's beaten face. Raymond, however, dismissed it as a bathtub accident, claiming Barbara had slipped. Her injuries were severe enough to require hospitalization for stitches, but Barbara later revealed that Raymond deliberately smashed her head against a cinder block wall. The children were not spared from Raymond's anger either. Jennifer recalled instances where she managed to escape, but on unfortunate occasions, he threw her to the ground, even knocking her bedroom door down on one occasion. Ray Jr.'s suffering was so intense that he moved out to Connecticut for college, fearing he might contemplate suicide if he stayed at home. Despite numerous witnesses to Raymond's violence, nobody reported his behavior to the authorities. In asserting his control, Raymond frequently reminded his family that he was the authority. He claimed to possess the knowledge to escape criminal acts due to his work in crime scene investigations. This fear was heightened by Raymond's threats to kill his wife, children, and the rest of the family, coupled with the constant presence of two loaded firearms he carried, even after retiring from the NYPD in 2002. Even when Barbara attempted to call 911 during a violent episode, Raymond prevented her, displaying control by smashing the phone into her face. In February of 2008, Raymond Sheehan's reign of terror ended abruptly. Despite the routine of spending weekends with Ray Jr. in college, on February 17, 2008, during the drive home, Raymond brutally punched Barbara, breaking her nose. The following morning, Raymond, treating the violence as part of his routine, decided on a trip to Florida. When Barbara resisted, he dragged her out of bed, threatened her life, locked her out of the house in freezing temperatures, and forced her to agree to the trip before letting her back in. Feigning compliance with Raymond's plans, Barbara arranged travel details for a trip she did not intend to take. Seizing an opportunity when Raymond left the room to shower, she escaped to a friend's home, where she regained composure and devised a plan. Barbara decided to return home, retrieve the $1,700 she had secretly stashed, and then leave without intending to return. She planned to tell her husband she was buying dog food. However, that fateful morning, February 18, 2008, did not unfold as planned. Upon returning home and heading to the bedroom to collect her money, Barbara discovered that Raymond was out of the shower, shaving in front of the bathroom mirror with his clock beside him on the vanity. The exact sequence of events remains somewhat unclear. Some accounts suggest that Raymond raised a gun to threaten Barbara, while others claim Barbara saw one of his guns in the bedroom and picked it up. What is certain is that Barbara shot him five times with a loaded revolver. When it was empty, she picked up his clock and fired another six rounds, emptying both guns. Barbara Sheehan was 46 years old when she fatally shot her husband, 49-year-old Raymond Sheehan. 
the couple had been married for nearly 25 years, during which Barbara endured long-standing abuse at the hands of her husband. Police were summoned and Barbara awaited them on the porch when they arrived. She had contacted her sister and a UPS delivery man for support. Police operated 1077, where's the emergency? Hi, it's at 9908 Avenue in Howard Beach. We need police right now. The address is 9158 yes. Street or Avenue? Avenue. What's the emergency? It, I don't know. I, 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 someone has a gun. Please, so, you, you have to send someone here, please. Okay, ma'am, but you have to tell me what's going on. What do you mean someone has a gun? What happened? I don't know. There's... I don't know. It's my sister. It's my sister's house. I don't really know what happened. I don't know. Is it a private house? Yes, it is. Her, her husband, he, he hit her. And he has a gun? No, no. He's gone. I don't know where he is. I think he's upstairs or something. I don't know. And your sister called you? Yes. Okay. Is she your sister in a private house? Yes. Are you there, ma'am? Yes, I am. Where are you, in front of the building? Yes, I am. And where's your sister? Inside the house. Okay, does she need an ambulance? The police are already on their way, but does she need both. an ambulance? Well, I, I think both. I think so, yeah, I think so. Did he hit her? I'm sorry? Did he hit her? Yes. And you think he has the gun? Uh, no, it's over here on the ground, I think. The gun is on the ground? Yes. Outside the house, right? Yes. Yes, Daddy, yes. Don't touch it. Whatever you do, don't... The side is already on its way. This isn't delaying anything. You see the police there? The police is right. The police, the police? is right here. Okay, yes. all right. Are you sending an ambulance? Yes, the ambulance is going to come, too. Okay. Okay? Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Barbara admitted to the shooting without denial and cooperatively went with the police, who charged her with second-degree murder. Upon learning of their father's death, both Jennifer and Ray Jr. expressed relief. Despite concerns for their mother, they felt a weight had been lifted, now that they were no longer living in fear of Raymond. Both adult children refer to their father as a monster and believe that if Barbara hadn't acted, he might have eventually killed her or the entire family as he had often threatened. Despite their liberation, fear lingered for the family. Specifically, what would happen to Barbara? Answers came at the trial in October 2011, a considerable time after the events. The trial's focus was not on establishing who'd done it, since Barbara admitted to the killing. Instead, the jury had to determine whether Barbara's actions constituted self-defense. New York's specific self-defense laws required the jury to assess whether Barbara's life was in imminent danger and if shooting Raymond was a reasonable reaction to her situation. Barbara had a substantial body of evidence in her favor, the extensive history of abuse corroborated by her children and extended family, was supported by medical records and counseling from domestic violence professionals. However, there was debate over whether psychiatric experts in long-term abuse should be allowed to testify regarding Barbara's likely state of mind at the time of the murder. The prosecution argued against it, citing Barbara's alleged failure to cooperate with a prosecution-hired psychologist, while the defense maintained her full cooperation during over 10 hours of examination. The prosecution's arguments appeared weak in the face of the defense's evidence, 
giving the impression that they were grasping at straws. They portrayed Barbara as a manipulative, pathological liar who murdered her husband out of hatred, suggesting she sought to benefit from his life insurance policies. In their view, Barbara fabricated abuse claims to justify the murder. Raymond's twin brother, Vincent Sheehan, aligned with the prosecution, asserting that his brother never wore two guns around the house and had never fired a gun in the line of duty. To challenge Barbara's accounts, the prosecution emphasized her failure to report the abuse to authorities and the lack of visible scarring on her person. They argued that Barbara's actions on the day of the incident did not align with someone fearing for their life, pointing to her making trip arrangements and proofing Ray Jr.'s college paper. In an unusual turn, the prosecution contended that Barbara's motive was disgust at Raymond's sexual preferences, detailing his fetishes, including quotes such as forcing his wife to watch while he masturbated, dressed in an adult diaper, and sucking on pacifiers. However, it is important to note that compliance or apparent agreement does not negate the possibility of abuse as individuals may adopt a fawn response to survive in the face of fear. One argument that resonated with the jury questioned why Barbara needed to use a second gun when Raymond had already went down from the first five shots. The jury, after three days of deliberation, acquitted Barbara Sheehan of murder and one gun possession charge. However, she was found guilty of a possession charge related to the second gun, as it was deemed unnecessary for self-defense after the initial shooting. Notably, the jury expressed skepticism about the prosecution's case regarding Raymond's sexual habits, indicating that they found it unconvincing. Before sentencing, the prosecution sought a severe penalty, claiming Barbara showed no remorse during the trial. This contradicted multiple reports describing Barbara as tearful, barely understandable at times, and visibly distressed, particularly when confronted with the guns used in the shooting. During the sentencing, the judge emphasized that Raymond, despite his cruel actions, was the victim acknowledging the lifetime of abuse suffered by Barbara and her family. Barbara was sentenced to five years for the single gun possession charge, a more lenient penalty than the 15-year maximum, but still disappointing to Barbara, her attorneys, and her family. They felt the sentence did not adequately consider the abuse leading up to the shooting. Barbara's attorney expressed their disappointment, stating, There is no joy today. The only thing that could bring joy to this family would be to bring them back 17 years before the first blow was struck. Raymond's family was also dissatisfied, believing the sentence wasn't harsh enough to hold Barbara accountable for the murder, according to his brother Vincent. Despite being allowed bail while the conviction was appealed, with family members putting up their houses for a staggering $1 million, Barbara eventually reported to prison in June 2013 to serve her sentence. Several appeals were made during her imprisonment, but their success was limited. The trial gained widespread attention, bringing the issue of domestic violence into the media spotlight for weeks, if not months. Women attending the trial, including Barbara and her daughter Jennifer, wore purple in solidarity with other domestic violence victims. The acquittal of the murder charge was seen as a significant step for domestic violence advocacy, validating the battered woman defense. This defense considers the abuse suffered by a victim when determining guilt. 
NYU professor of law Holly Magigan noted, The case is a good marker of the willingness of jurors to realize that a history of abuse can inform a woman's sense of the need to act in self-defense. Barbara's acquittal set a legal precedent for similar cases in New York. Yeah, Jody, she is a free woman tonight. After nearly two weeks behind bars, she wants to surround herself with her children, her family, friends, close neighbors who have been her support throughout all of this. She was acquitted of murder, yet still had to serve jail time. So the big question is, should she ever have been behind bars in the first place? Barbara Sheehan is once again in the arms of her family, her strength throughout her three-and-a-half-year ordeal as she waited for trial for killing her husband, Raymond. I'm very happy, and it's, but it's been very, very difficult. Sheehan's face spoke more than her words, pale, with dark circles under her eyes, a rosary around her neck. Sheehan spent six extra days behind bars for a bail paperwork snafu. She's never spoken publicly about the verdict three weeks ago, acquitted of murder and firing five shots into her husband with his 38 caliber gun. I thank God every day that they believed in me and they believed my story and they believed my children because the story was the truth. But the jury did find her guilty of criminally possessing one gun. In an exclusive interview with PIX11, the jury forewoman said she didn't feel that Barbara needed to use Raymond's Glock to fire the next six shots. The judge ordered her to start serving jail time. But an appeal court ruling that should have gotten her out in days turned into nearly two long weeks behind bars. It's very hard for me to talk about the justice system right now. I don't know if I should have went there on that Wednesday. They just wanted to cover their butts. Barbara's bail bondsman was even called before her judge today just for a signature and to verify her bail. He said in 11 years on the job, he's never been asked to do that or seen the sky-high million-dollar bail Sheehan has for her gun conviction. I wasn't a flight risk on the murder charge, so this is only a gun charge, so I'm definitely not a flight risk. That's not an issue. The appeal of that gun conviction opens new doors for the defense. They want text messages from the district attorney's office from Raymond Sheehan's phone, which may include threats to Barbara, as well as expert doctor testimony about how much Barbara feared for her life. The central fact of whether she was in fear for her life at the time she was able to grab the second gun away from her husband and and uh, as she fired backing up. So this expert testimony comes from a doctor who interviewed Barbara right after the murders, and she would be able to speak to Barbara's mindset. Those text messages were sent the night before and the morning of Raymond's killings. The defense team thinks they contain threats and will speak very strongly as to exactly why Barbara needed to use that second gun, the one she was convicted of using, when it gets time for the appeal. That's the next part of this process. We're live at Queen Supreme Court in Kew Gardens. I'm Kirsten Cole, PIX11 News. As of the writing of this episode, Barbara Sheehan was expected to be released in 2018, but there were no available reports detailing whether or when this occurred. Those were the cases of David Ford and Raymond Sheehan. One was a complex individual who faced challenges in his personal life, including infidelity, which played a role in the unraveling of his marriage. The other was a man who, as a police sergeant, wielded his authority to threaten his wife and family, pushing her to a breaking point where, in her mind at least, it became a matter of life and death. As we reflect on these stories, it's essential to acknowledge the complexities of intimate partner violence, recognizing that each case is unique and can involve layers of emotional 
physical and psychological trauma. The legal system plays a critical role in navigating these complexities, as seen in the trials and sentencing of both Tanya Ford and Barbara Sheehan. We would love to hear from you if you have strong opinions or thoughts about either case, the trials, or even the sentencing. Your perspective adds some depth to the conversation and contributes to a broader understanding of these challenging issues. We can always talk about this case in the True Crime Convo's livestream. If you or someone you know might be experiencing intimate partner violence, please visit the National Domestic Violence Hotline at www.thehotline.org or call 800-799-7233. Assistance is available for those concerned about internet usage being monitored. The provided link and number will be available in the show notes. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at True Crime underscore Cases, Facebook at Facebook.com slash True Crime Cases W Laney, and Instagram at True Crime Cases with Laney. Our website is TrueCrimeCasesPodcast.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at LaneyHobbsBO or on TikTok at LaneyHobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of The Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Lainey Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at TheInkyPawPrint.com. <laughs>